0: from Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C. This is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to HPS Insights, a podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies analyzing the current events impacting the business and political communities. I'm your host today, Brian DeAngelis, a partner here at HPS, and I'm joined by a good friend and and one of our clients, uh, Craig Somm. Craig Somm is the chief legal officer for Grayscale and you've been doing a lot of work down here in Washington over the yes. past <laughs> couple months. And we're going to dive into all of that crypto ETFs. But let's just start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to Grayscale.
1: Sure. So thank you so much for having me, Brian. Of course. Uh, so I started my journey to Grayscale, I guess, in law school when uh, I was a law student there and discovered this thing called Bitcoin. Okay. Um, I learned about it because I read a lot of tech journals, like Wired Magazine, and things like that, and was reading a story about something called the Silk Road, which uh, you may or may not have heard about. It was an early application uh, that used Bitcoin to power its marketplace, which was for goods, both licit and illicit. And more so than the marketplace, I was really intrigued by how Bitcoin was being used to finance transactions that were taking place on it. And I wanted to learn more, and so I started to actually take computer science programs to better understand how these underlying data structures called blockchains, which is what records Bitcoin transactions and right. the history and verifies things, um, how that worked at like a very deep, uh, you know, computer science level. And around what year was this? This was well, when I give the answer. You're going to be like, "Wait, so did you buy a lot of Bitcoin?" Yeah, right. It was in 2011. And to answer to, to get ahead of that question. <laughs> Uh, the answer is no. Um, I was still in law school, so Bummer. paying off. <laughs> well, I wouldn't be here if that had happened. Fair, fair. I yeah. um, wouldn't be here doing this lovely podcast. Um, yeah, so I did not because I uh, you know, I was still paying off law school debts and things like that and wasn't in a position to be investing. And in it's very speculative, right. even more speculative back then than it is now, asset and technology. So it was really more of a intellectual investment. Um, Start learning about how the technology works, how it was being used. I was in law school, so I wanted to understand what were the legal and, and political considerations sure. there. And so, just you know, stayed up to speed on what was going on. Um, you may not know this, but the way law school works is kind of interesting in that. If you want to have one of these big law jobs in New York or California or um, one of those locations, you kind of get that job after your first year of grades because that dictates where you land for your summer associate position.
0: Or internship, basically. Yeah, it's yeah.
1: essentially an internship. Um, they call it a summer associate position. But you most likely will end up there after you graduate law school because they want to bring on, you know, upcoming grads and have them have a good experience and meet the partners and things like that Right. so I got an offer at Paul Weiss and essentially knew I was going to go there after law school and that was a really great opportunity because it just has such a vast corporate practice and gave me exposure to a lot of different types of clients and industries and practice areas um, I wasn't doing anything Bitcoin or crypto related. I was just
0: about to ask were they doing a lot of crypto at that time yeah
1: they were not but nor was any Anybody. law firm And this was back in 2013 right. when I started there um but that experience was great because I really learned how to be a good corporate lawyer, which is what I was very much focused on. So I was you know, getting involved in m and and finance and investment management and capital markets, mm-hmm. knowing that that skill set is what I would want to use when I eventually would leave, mm-hmm. which at that time I decided was to break into the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency space in some capacity. Um, I had one year where I spent it at Apollo on secondment, which was a really unique experience oh, because... It offered me the opportunity to go in-house and see what it was like to be a lawyer there, and that experience really crystallized for me that I wanted to be in-house somewhere, not at a law firm, because I really valued being able to work with all the departments—not just legal, but compliance and operations, and the traders and the salespeople. And I know like
0: communications is your communications.
1: Aid, yeah. I was getting to that as you know <laughs> the one I love working with the most, and sure. the very close connection between legal and, and communications. That's right. Um, so then I. Went back to Paul Weiss after succumbent, sat down and put together a list of every Bitcoin, crypto, blockchain, distributed ledger technology, because that's what people were calling it back then, companies in New York. And Grayscale was one of the companies that I got connected to. And it was really the perfect place for me to land because it's the perfect marriage of my strong intellectual interest in Bitcoin and crypto and blockchain technology married with the investment management capital markets experience that I gained at Paul Weiss. Yeah, that's uh, great. Yeah, so that was January 2018, and uh, it's been an amazing experience since then.
0: Yeah, I bet. So tell us a little bit more about Grayscale. What's what's their role in the broader crypto space?
1: Yeah, so Grayscale is a digital currency asset manager. We're the largest in the world, managing about $30 billion, give or take across a family of 17 digital asset products, so those are holding actual coins, and then one newly launched equity ETF called Grayscale Future of Finance Fund. And our mission is really to bring access and exposure to the digital currency asset class in the form of a security, which is just a very familiar, transparent, traditional type of way to get investment exposure. Our clients are institutional investors, more regulated investors, um, you know, pensions, endowments, sovereigns that want this exposure, but because of legal compliance, risk, reasons, or comfort, or things their advisors or investors are saying can't get the actual direct exposure. But what they can do is invest in a security that gives that exposure to them. Um, so that's really our offering. We launched in 2013 with our Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And since then, it's become the largest publicly traded Bitcoin fund in the world. It's holding about 3.4% of all Bitcoin outstanding. It has hundreds of millions of dollars of daily trading volume, over 850,000 investors across all 50 states. And it's really become a great way for investors who want that Bitcoin exposure to invest in it through that you know, traditional security.
0: My understanding, working with you guys now for a little bit, that, that trust was always set up to be an ETF. And there are obviously some investor disadvantages to it, it not yet being an ETF. Explain that to our listeners.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. The U.S. is unique right now in that we're one of the um, more developed countries that do not yet have a Bitcoin, let alone any other cryptocurrency ETF. And so what Grayscale has done is offered products that really give investors the next closest thing available for that digital asset right. exposure based on the current state of U.S. regulations. And so what we've devised is a four-stage product lifecycle where each stage of our products um, results in them becoming more accessible to more types of investors, with the fourth and final stage being conversion into an ETF. So the first stage for our products is a private placement under Rule five hundred six C, which is an exemption from SEC registration, and that offering is initially only available to accredited investors, mm-hmm. and those investors have a statutory one year lockup period. Yep. So in terms of like access and exposure, it's the most restrictive way that you can invest in the product. And you might say, well, why can you do that? But why don't we have a Bitcoin ETF? The reason is a policy choice that our regulators have made in that they're OK with accredited investors, which are wealthy, have a certain level of income and sophistication. And also, um, if they're able to hold on and bear that risk for at least a year, that's just the initial offering. And then afterwards, they'd be more OK with other you know, non-accredited investors getting the exposure. So that's the first phase, the private placement. The second phase is something innovative that we've done is develop a public quotation on the over-the-counter markets for the shares in the product that were originally created in the private placement that have been held for one year and can now be freely traded. So just thinking more Got accessible, it. more types of investors, right. retail investors can access that product. There's no lockup periods. But importantly, it's not an ETF at that stage. And so what that does is result in the product trading at what have historically been premiums and discounts. The third stage that we do is make the products SEC reporting, and what that does is make them more transparent, more robust for our investors that really need that type of um, reporting standards and disclosure for their own you know, investment, risk committees, compliance folks and so on. And we do that voluntarily because we know that's this is what you know, our investors really want and deserve.
0: Um, I was just going to ask that. This is not something the SEC is is mandating. You guys are. Right.
1: We're doing this, you know, raising our hand. We want to be subject to heightened reporting standards. A little bit of ask
0: permission, not forgiveness. Yes. Yeah. And
1: that's, strategy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's that's something the theme that Grayscale has followed throughout our history of, you know, getting in front of regulators, helping them better understand this asset class so that they can do their job better of protecting their investors, consumers, while also still balancing that with allowing the innovation to flourish in the U.S. Um, So that's the third stage. And then the fourth and final stage is conversion into an ETF at which point the product will be as accessible as possible to investors, trade it on an exchange, and then also better track its underlying assets uh, because you have this creation and redemption mechanism that you get with an ETF.
0: So let's jump into that. And uh, it's, it's a bit of a niche issue maybe to a wider audience, but probably a lot of our listeners have been following this pretty closely. Um, the SEC last fall agreed or, or approved uh, – futures ETFs for Bitcoin. Um, that seemed to signal to the market that, okay, the SEC is getting more comfortable with this. I think a lot of folks expected Gary Gensler, professor MIT on blockchain, mm-hmm. to come in and have, candidly, way more understanding of this space than, than some of the other potential regulators. And we've seen a number of futures ETFs approved, but we're not yet there on the spot ETF. And the SEC has rejected... Several applicants, and you guys are up at the end of July. Where, where are things right now in this kind of consideration with the SEC? Yep.
1: So, we started this process along with several other Bitcoin ETF applicants, you know, back in 2013, technically, but the real first wave of, of applicants in front of the SEC was in 2016 into 2017. And at that time, we were seeking to convert our flagship product, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, into a ETF. There were several other issues at the time that were looking to create new Bitcoin ETFs. And there were really two types of products then and today. There's ones that hold actual physical Bitcoin or spot Bitcoin, like right. what GBDC does today, as well as products that hold a derivative of Bitcoin, Bitcoin futures. And back then, the SEC either denied or told to withdraw, or in the case of Grayscale, voluntarily withdrew. The applications because of what the SEC cited to be the potential for fraud or manipulation in the underlying Bitcoin markets. And if that's the concern, then it makes total sense why the SEC would not be comfortable with both the spot and the futures-based products, right. since they're both priced based on those underlying markets. And so Grayscale withdrawal our application. Um, this was also when we you know, went to the SEC and said... We understand that you're not comfortable with the ETF product because it would be more available to retail investors, but would you be okay with us making the product SEC reporting? And over a couple of back and forth, they eventually said, um, yes, we would review that application. And that was a really good process for us to get in front of the SEC on because it allowed us to, um, in that context, talk to them more about. Bitcoin, its use cases, its market structure, how we think about custody, um, how we think about accounting for Bitcoin on, on our financial statements, um, enhancing our risk disclosures, things like that. Right. So we've always had, always had a really good engagement with the SEC of helping them and be an educational resource. But um, that was back in you know, 2018. And then, as you mentioned, last year we had the first not spot-based Bitcoin ETF approved, but a futures-based ETF. And that was a really exciting and interesting event. Exciting because yeah. any level of more access for investors to Bitcoin is positive. Um, but at the same time, it was interesting because if you recall that the issue for the SEC all long had been around the underlying pricing. Right. Well, how could they be okay with a futures-based ETF but not a spot-based ETF since they're both priced based on the underlying markets? Yeah.
0: Now, their argument on this is around the 33 and 40 acts. So can you explain yeah. to our listeners a little bit about what that is?
1: Yeah. So there's a couple of uh, reasonings the SEC has provided for why they were starting to treat the futures-based product differently from the spot-based product. And I would argue that those those are really distinctions without a difference. Um, but there's two of them. One is that the futures-based product holds CME Bitcoin futures, whereas the spot-based product holds actual Bitcoin. And so the argument there is that because these CME Bitcoin futures are trading on CME, which is regulated by the CFTC, there's more investor protections there in contrast to spot-based Bitcoin. And while it's true that there is different type of regulation there, that regulation on the futures exchange is not going to do anything to if you're concerned about it, prevent fraud or manipulation in the underlying Bitcoin markets. Correct, right. So distinction without a difference. The other distinction they've, they've cited in the past has been around the regulations of the two types of ETFs. So the futures-based ETFs, uh, prior to just a couple of weeks ago, right. were all regulated under the Investment Company Act of 1940, whereas ETFs like GBTC would be regulated under the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, and Securities Act of 1933. And so, so 40 Act, 34 Act, 33 Act. Um, The 40 Act does- There won't be a quiz later. There will not be. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There might be though. Yeah. The, the 40 Act does have added investor protections, but those protections are at the fund level as opposed to the underlying market level. So what the 40 Act does is require things like certain types of accounting, restrictions on borrowing and lending, um, qualified custody, restrictions on conflicts of interest, board independence, which are all good for investor protection. But again, those are not going to do anything to impact the underlying Bitcoin markets. So you have these two distinctions. We argue that in the context of Bitcoin ETF approvals, those are distinctions without a difference. Nonetheless, it's what the arguments the SEC has made. And um, our attorneys at Davis-Polk have filed letters in the context of our ETF application arguing why those are not meaningful
0: enough distinctions in this case. The- so they were doing that for a few months let yeah. just kind of break this down so I, th- I think it was November when the futures ETFs were approved uh, forgive me if I'm off a little there and Davis Polk makes the argument there's you know a distinction without a difference here between right. 33 and 40 but then I think you were about to get to this a few minutes ago a couple weeks ago uh, two cream gets approved as a futures ETF but under the 40 act.
1: Under the 34 Under the 34 Act, Act excuse right. me.
0: Um, right. So now there's presumably no difference. Yeah.
1: So this is another interesting technical point about securities laws, which probably will show up on the exam later. Right.
0: <laughs> I've already failed that last <laughs> one. But.
1: Um, with an ETF that holds futures, you can elect to have it regulated under the 40 Act or the 34 and 33 Act. Um, It's just a matter of what the issuer chooses to do based on its own business objectives. Before this 2 cream ETF that you mentioned, all the prior futures ETFs that have been approved were regulated under the 40 Act. And so the SEC was saying, we're approving these because the 40 Act just has this different standard, and we're not being inconsistent by approving those 40 Act funds and continuing to disapprove the spot-based 34 and 33 Act funds. With Tucrium, it was really interesting because they were the first uh, example of a futures ETF that was not seeking to be regulated under the 40 Act. And so what that did was put the SEC in a position where they could either deny it and continue to uphold this distinction of the 40 Act versus 34 and 33, or approve it and then come up with some other justification. Um, And what they ended up doing was approving it. So... What we have now is basically a path that's been paved that is leading into what we believe should be approval of spot-based ETFs. We had 40-act futures approved in November. Right. We had 34-act, 33-act approved uh, in April. And now what we believe should happen is having you know, spot-based approved yeah. on the 34 and
0: 33-act. And my question on this front, and we've talked a little bit about this off the air, but is this just the SEC getting comfortable with where Bitcoin and crypto is going and we could pull in a whole bunch of other things, the executive order, other stuff. Right. But it does seem to be probably based on the education that GrayScale and other companies are doing. The SEC has just slowly kind of naturally evolved on this and getting more and more comfortable, which mm-hmm. to me too would lead to a natural conclusion of the spot uh, ETF is next. Yeah.
1: yeah, I think that's spot on. You know, this is... A new asset class. It was invented a little over a decade ago. Um, it's the first asset class that was invented since the invention of the ETF itself. And if you look back at ETF history, even more well understood assets like gold. Um, you know, the gold ETF took several years of the initial application to ultimately be approved. And so it's understandable why it would take this long for a Bitcoin ETF to be approved. And to the SEC's credit, you know, they've been very um, open and willing to engage with us and other issuers to better understand the asset class. I mentioned the engagement we have with them in the context of becoming SEC reporting right. and their questions have become very sophisticated. Um, you know I always say that they have a tough job of striking that balance of one protecting investors but also allowing, you know, the innovation to flourish. And so it really is just a matter of time. Um What's also going on now in the context of our efforts to convert into an ETF is this open comment letter period.
0: Yeah, let's get into this. So um, just just pausing there, because I want to give you the opportunity to give the full explanation. So you guys have been pretty public over the last several months of the need for this. The SEC is in a comment letter period now, running through July 6, where they're asking the public to weigh in on this talk a little bit about what Grayscale is doing both with investors but also you're doing a lot here in Washington as well. Right.
1: Yeah, so because the Bitcoin ETF is a would require a new rule under the SEC's rules. It requires this open comment later period where the SEC is reviewing the application and also inviting in the public to submit their own commentary of why they think or don't think the SEC should approve of the CTF. And that's just a great demonstration of the democratic process at work because it's showing you know regulators want to take in the information, make sure they're assessing this, and really putting a lot of thought into it because it is a important and difficult question. So that process was kicked off when we refiled our 19B4 last October. It opened up this 240-day review period where the SEC is taking in comment letters, reviewing them. Um, Grayscale, knowing that this is a really important process, but also knowing that our investors and the public maybe don't know that they can be a part of it, started this campaign uh, to really activate our base and say, you can be a part of this process and have your voice heard. So we create a website grayscale.com slash comment that explains the issues makes it really simple for anybody visiting that website to um, click on a button opens up a window where they can email the SEC yep um, we've created a little template just to make it easier, but everyone's obviously invited in to put their own commentary in it
0: yeah and you're and giving people a lot of information the Davis-Polk yeah. arguments are up there or some yeah. of the other yeah back and forth um, yeah. and uh, so, we've
1: launched this campaign. Um, we have advertising in Union Station here in DC, Penn Station back in New York, because um, it's important to make sure that this is all known. And we've been extremely encouraged by the response that we've received. Um, I checked the SC website before this podcast, and there have been over 4,000 letters submitted by wow. the public. Yeah. As far as comment letters go in a regulatory open comment letter period, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, and you know, we've been going through the letters over the last couple of months to see what's coming in. It's a really good mix of both our investors as well as um, market participants, academics. Um, and we've really started to see three themes arise through all these comment letters. One is around investor protection. So we already have investors in GPTC. Uh, the AUM is in the tens of billions of dollars, but because it's not an ETF, Today, it's trading at a discount because you don't have this creation-redemption mechanism that I mentioned to ARB against premiums and discounts. So that's billions of dollars of actual investor capital that's being trapped in the fund that's not able to be realized because it's not an ETF. So these investors are saying, hey, SEC, I'm invested in this fund because I want Bitcoin exposure through this wrapper. How are you protecting me by not allowing it to convert into an ETF, given that it would allow it to better track NAV? Um, it's a large fund. There's a lot of investors behind it. There's actual equity behind it. Um, it's SEC reporting. It, it's accomplished all these things that an ETF is able to do, but becoming an actual ETF. So yeah. that's one of the themes that we're seeing. Uh,
0: let me jump in. Explain NAV to our listeners. Okay. If they don't fully um, get that.
1: Good point. So NAV is a net asset value. And all it means is the actual value of underlying assets in a given fund. So today, let's say GBTC has $30 billion of net asset value of its underlying Bitcoins. Because it's trading at, let's say, a 25% discount, that's over $7 billion of value that's not being reflected in the price of the shares. That's
0: essentially lost to those investors.
1: Well, for now. So there's a lot of, once it eventually does convert into an ETF, because of the creation redemption mechanism inherent to any well-functioning ETF the discount that it's currently trading at would trade back up to nav yeah. because that's just how the ETFR ARB me- mechanism works. So we're actually seeing a lot of investors that are you know, buying GBTC because they know that eventually it will convert. And if you have a long enough outlook, which a lot of our investors do around this asset class, um, because it is new, because it is a you know a new technology that is still being explored, you know, they are long-term holders right. for a lot of for a lot of their cases. Um, so that's the first theme, investor investor protection. Um, the second theme we're seeing is around America competitiveness and leadership in crypto and Web3. Yep. And that very much is bolstered by this White House executive order from a couple of months ago, where you had for the first time you know, the president and the White House saying, we want America to lead in this space. And so the, the line of reasoning is, well, what better way to do that than by further bringing Bitcoin into the regulatory perimeter through products like a spot-based Bitcoin TF? Um, so it's the second, second theme around you know America competitiveness. And then the third argument is what I've really touched on around this Davis-Polk argument, these legal arguments, which is that we already have a futures ETF. Um, how do we not have a spot-based ETF, given the underlying concerns historically have been around right. the underlying pricing? Right.
0: And there's some connection there between those last two, right? If we if America wants to lead, if, if the President of the United States and the White House are recognizing this isn't – some passing fad, as some people like to right. believe, with crypto. But but this is real, and this is a set of assets that people, you would think an ETF would be a natural next tool right. and next step for.
1: Yeah, funds. and you know, by not approving a spot ETF, it's not like Americans aren't going to be able to get their exposure elsewhere. They'll go to you know other cryptocurrency exchanges, which may may or not be in the U.S., which means they may not be as regulated or protective. So. You're not keeping investors from getting the Bitcoin exposure by not approving an ETF, which is another reason why, you know, the approval should go through. Um, And in the meantime, we have other countries around the world with robust financial markets that have already approved these products. You have Canada, you have Germany, Switzerland. Australia this week is going to list their first uh, both Bitcoin and Ethereum ETFs. So we're continuing to fall behind, and that's, you know, reason why we think it's really important to allow these approvals to happen.
0: Well, we have a few minutes left. So final thought, let's say we get to July 6th and the SEC denies the application. What happens next from there?
1: Yeah, so one potential option is something that we have in public about, which would be a lawsuit against the SEC under something called the Administrative Procedure Act, or the APA, sure. and the Exchange Act. And the argument behind those two um, acts are under the APA, which you know, governs how regulators govern. You cannot be arbitrary and capricious in your treatment of, in our case, investment products. And so, as I mentioned, it's inconsistent to be okay with futures and not spot. Um, and then under the Exchange Act, it is essentially just unfair discrimination against you know these two types of investment products. Right. So one potential avenue would be a lawsuit against against the SEC. Um, but I think what's important to realize about that is it's not like a lawsuit where there's animosity against somebody. I, I was
0: just going to say this is people hear a lawsuit and they get defensive, right. they get aggressive. But this is a, a pretty standard next step for these kind of it's, yeah, it's a standard
1: option that's available and is a reflection of just how the, you know, the U.S. democratic process works. We have three branches. We have you know, Congress, which writes the laws. The executive branch, which the SEC falls into, which enforces the laws right. and then the courts which interpret those laws. And right now, you know, if we were to get denied, then we would have a disagreement with how those laws are being interpreted by the SEC and us. And we could go to Congress and say, you know, can you rewrite these, amend these for what we think is more sure. sensible yep. in the context of Bitcoin TFs, or we can go to the courts and see if they interpret it differently. So it's just one available option that we would have to us. And, you know, it's not unheard of. Um, regulators, you know, get sued by those that they regulate. It happens. It's not as if it changes their their posture right. with respect to one another. We see another. it all the time. In this yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we have a respectful um, relationship with the SEC. And as I mentioned before, it's a difficult situation they're in with this asset class, which is new. And they want to really strike that balance of protecting investors while also allowing it to flourish.
0: Right. Thanks for coming on and, and explaining this. As I mentioned, um, a lot of folks are paying attention to this in, in Congress and in the media. So uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot more in the next few weeks as we as we get to July 6th. But I uh, really appreciate you taking yeah. a few minutes.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Brian.
0: And uh, thank you to all of our listeners. As always, this is HPS Insights. We'll be back again next week. And in the meantime, you can uh, check out our show on hamiltonplacestrategies.com, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and follow along with the work we're doing on Twitter at HPS Insights. I'm Brian DeAngelis. Thanks all for listening. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights Podcast, produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights, and follow us on the web at hamiltonplacestrategies.com.